Thank you, Tally. Good morning, everybody. We are high. Chapter, chapter two. And so we're like 16 more to go, right? So we're still just getting started in 1 Corinthians and 15 more to go. Math is hard. We did chapter one and chapter two. 16 chapters of Corinthians we'll be going through probably for the next 30 plus weeks. And so um, let's, let's pray and, and with one another, for one another. And man, um, worship team, but especially Rindy, thank you for leading us. And uh, Rindy's song, let, let that just be our prayer. So we come to you, Father, and we do say, great is your faithfulness. Just every morning, morning by morning, your mercies are new for us. And all that we need, you provide. And we need wisdom. We need direction. We need our hearts captured once again by the beauty of who Jesus is, what he's done. Help me uh, Hold up the beauty of the gospel to my friends so all of us can see it and wonder. And uh, as, as Paul is going to call us to here, and we so often pray that we would leave today impressed by one person and one person alone, and that is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We pray this in Jesus, your name, God's people said, amen. Caleb, you'll appreciate this story, I think. Um, so you let me know. This week, I, I learned about a man named Alexander who was a security guard at an art museum in Russia. And he was on his first day of the job as a security guard at an art museum in a town in Russia called uh, Yekaterinburg. And, it, you know, if you are a security guard at an art museum, the job description is pretty simple. It's like... You're there to guard the art. You have one job, right? Well, on his first day at the job, there was one painting that was really like primarily and predominantly featured because it was on loan from a really big art museum in Moscow. And it was a piece called Three Figures by a famous artist named uh, Anna Lipinskia. And this was a work created in, I think, 1934 and uh, on loan again from a, a big museum in Moscow. And this is a a picture of it. I don't know how you guys feel about it. Someone in the first service yelled, I could paint that. And I reminded them, but she did it first, right? And so that's why, you know, you don't have art in a museum and she does. But I don't know how you feel about it. Alexander, the, the security guard, wasn't a huge fan. Wasn't a huge fan. He, he is quoted as saying it left a, quote, difficult impression upon him. Um, it seemed to unsettle him. He didn't like it. There was a, a field trip for Alexander's first day on the job, and there were some high school girls that were visiting, and they, they concurred with Alexander. They weren't huge fans of the painting. And they actually were kind of goading him and giving him a hard time about it and, and, and uh, just kind of egging him on and and calling to him to say, hey, you have a measure of authority here as a security guard on your first day on the job. You could do something about this painting. You could improve it. You could fix it. And eventually he, he gave in and went to the gift shop, picked up a souvenir ballpoint pen, and just drew some eyes on these faces. I think we have a close-up of... Yeah. Now, the director of the museum got wind and came and quickly informed Alexander that the, the three figures was worth 
at a minimum a million dollars. And he was promptly fired because, again, he had one job, which was to guard the art of the museum. And so he kind of epically failed to do that. And he came to realize, he was confused about, I think, even how art museums worked. And, uh, and probably didn't get a lot of training. Uh, but after he kind of realized what he had done, he lamented and said, I'm, I'm a fool. I'm a fool for what I've done when he knew the value of the work that he had been entrusted to guard. The point is this, to kind of begin to prepare our hearts to look at this passage of Scripture. Like, the church in Corinth had been entrusted with something far more valuable than a million-dollar painting. They had been entrusted with something that is the most valuable thing in the universe, which is the treasure of the gospel, the, the wisdom, the depths, the beauty of knowing the, the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done and how that has changed life for everybody. But in their foolishness, in their immaturity, we see that they were in danger of trying to, quote-unquote, improve, to, to tweak, to fix, to add to the message of the gospel, the very foundation of the Christian faith. And what Paul knew is that they wouldn't actually be able to add to it. If they did try to change the message, it would, it would be ruined. It would be devalued. And so Paul is writing to this church He's writing to us to help us understand the, the power of the gospel, the beauty of the gospel, and, and the wonder of what happens when we proclaim the gospel and what the Spirit of God does. And to, to hold up that truth, he's going to remind this church and remind us of actually how he went about ministry and sharing about Jesus in this city of Corinth. And so there's two things. We're just going to take this text in two passages. And the first thing that Paul wants us to see is the pitfalls and the power of sharing the gospel. The pitfalls, how we can get it wrong and how the church in Corinth was tempted to get it wrong when we go about just talking about Jesus, but also the power, what it really looks like to, to simply proclaim the truth of Jesus as Paul did and the power of God in and through that. Paul writes, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and trembling. This is a bit of a reminder with where we've been for the last several weeks, but, but it's important to keep in front of us all through 1 Corinthians, and particularly in this text, really the, the context of their cities, their culture's understanding and definition of wisdom. The concept of wisdom here, it's where we get our, uh, it, it, the Greek is Sophia, it's where we get our English word philosophy or sophistication. And, and wisdom to people that lived in Corinth 2,000 years ago, was, it was like a worldview. It was like their view of the good life, like what they built their life upon. Their hopes leaned on what they would describe as wisdom. And one thing that how this kind of culturally played itself out in the city is that the city of Corinth was, was known for sophists who are these like traveling philosophers who would come through and they would, they would provide their vision of the good life, what life is about, what you should build your hope on. 
And they would build up followers. And it was really easy in ancient Corinth to attract a crowd through just gifted speaking. And that's what happened is that over time, this reality in the culture of the city has made its way over this last year and a half that Paul has been gone. And it's kind of invaded the internal life of this church. And, and what has begun to happen is that the, the Christians in Corinth just started to, in light of the view of wisdom in the city, when they considered their own life and their own gospel community and the own, the, their belief in Jesus and the message of the gospel, they started to feel just a bit embarrassed about the, the message of who Jesus is and what he's done. Perhaps it wasn't wise enough in, in the way that the Corinthians viewed wisdom, sophisticated, wasn't as philosophical, was too simple, too brutal, too offensive. And so maybe they could just tweak it a little bit, just add to it, just emphasize some different things, and then certain aspects of the message of, of Jesus and, and who he is and what he's done, it wouldn't be offensive like we feel like it is right now. They were Alexander, the security guarding the gospel. They're going to take out their ballpoint pins and add to the, to the masterpiece. And so Paul, knowing that this is a temptation, this is where some of the church is, is headed, what does he have to say? He says, well, when I came to you, brothers, I did not proclaim to you the testimony of God with, with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, Paul isn't saying that he just didn't like, he just came with like a mantra of just saying Jesus. Jesus was crucified again and again, or he just carried a cross around or something. He, he's, he's not saying that he was just boring or a simpleton or dull when he shared the truth of the gospel. But Paul is saying, hey, remember how I spoke about Jesus to you. And remember how you came to faith. Remember how this church began. A city known for its sophists, a city known to be obsessed with wisdom. Paul didn't come and try to meet them on their terms and flex with his own eloquence or his own sophistication, but he came with the simple, straight, powerful truth of who Jesus is and that he was killed on a cross and that he rose again. And Paul is saying, look, I didn't try to impress anybody. I didn't try to gather a crowd around my gifting but I tried to actually be a part of a family of God being created, laid upon the foundation of who Jesus is and the very power of God. And again, this doesn't mean that Paul was like boring or, or dumb as he shared about Jesus. Like one of the ironies of 1 Corinthians is that Paul is insisting that he isn't trying to be eloquent or impressive in his speech. And he's like the most eloquent, impressive person in his writing, like in history, right? It's kind of frustrating. You're like, Paul, it's like somebody in an in incredibly good shape being like, hey, it's, it's, it's about inner beauty. And you're like, you're super handsome, Paul. Like that doesn't help coming from you, you know? And yet what Paul is saying here is like, like even in the midst of writing something like 1 Corinthians, which is probably the most referred to piece of ancient literature, like incredibly wise and moving and eloquent. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. 
Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Like, it's undeniable that Paul has a way with words. If we've ever said a phrase like, in the twinkling of an eye, or the scum of the earth, or all things to all people, like, we're quoting Paul. So uh, the man could move you with his words. He's not saying that it's bad to, to, to be gifted in speech or writing or to be a good communicator. But Paul is saying his point in proclaiming the gospel was never to lift himself up, but he always sought to do one thing, which was just simply and powerfully lift Jesus up. And that he knew that he couldn't save anybody, but he entrusted that the Holy Spirit was going to work through him an imperfect tool to do amazing, miraculous things. Unless we think that Paul maybe have been like straightforward in his message, but it was actually just his presence that was different, that he just brought in his very bodily presence a boldness and a power. Notice what he says in verse 3. And I was with you in, what, three things, in weakness, in fear, in trembling. Now, theologians like have differing kind of opinions and interpretations as to what exactly might be going on here. But I do encourage you to go read this week, Acts 18. It's the history of Paul in Corinth. And, and what we do know is that when Paul came to Corinth to begin to share the gospel, he was so shook, so fearful, so certain of the harm that was coming his way that God appeared in a vision and a dream and actually gave him the message and said, hey, Paul, do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Don't be silent for I'm with you. No one will attack or harm you, for I have many of these people, people in the city who are mine. And so Paul was so intimidated about proclaiming the gospel originally in Corinth that God had to show up and encourage him to not be silent. And yet, Acts 18 goes on to describe that there was this united attack against Paul, this concerted effort to silence him, to persecute him. And so the context of, of Paul sharing the gospel was a hostile context when he first came to Corinth. And there, he had friends that were putting their faith in Jesus and then were getting beat in the streets. And so Paul's saying, hey, you remember, I didn't, I didn't come like a sophist with really eloquent, moving speech. It wasn't my words that changed your life, church in Corinth. And even remember my presence. I wasn't bold or I wasn't impressive. You guys knew me. You were there. You saw that I was trembling. I was fearful. And yet, when Paul spoke, God moved and people were saved. I'm thinking of what this means for us today, this week. And it just, it just strikes me that there are all sorts of things that, that if you're a Christian in this room, that you believe, that we believe, that we embrace and hold as true, that to people in our lives that we, that we love and we care for, they view it as really foolish, really outdated, really bigoted in today's society. Like if you believe marriage isn't primarily about felt needs and happiness, but you believe it's about displaying the very love of God to the world and growing in, in service and in, in maturity and sacrifice, that's that's foolish to most people. 
if you believe that that sex isn't what culture says, this mixed message of, hey, sex is, is everything, but on the same hand, sex is nothing. But it's actually, you believe the word of God that is a gift given to a husband and a wife in marriage? That you believe money and possessions are, are not something to be lived for, but are just a tool for worship? Truth about sin and, and heaven and, and hell and forgiveness and loving an enemy? We could go on and on and on. But this is the bottom line. To, to really follow Jesus and speak about him and proclaim truth means facing the fact that in this day and age that people will think us foolish and even be offended by things that we hold to be true. And there's no way around it to embrace historic Christianity, the truth of the gospel, and to, to really follow Jesus means that people will be offended when we talk about what we believe and what we hold to be true. And so what we have before us is this temptation that this church in Corinth faced 2,000 years ago that, hey, maybe if we just tweak some things that will avoid that offense. And look, this is, this is true. Like, we should not go out of our way to be offensive. That's immature. Jesus didn't do that. We should be kind and compassionate. We should be loving. We should be good listeners. It's good to be well-read and think deeply about current and complex issues. All that's true. But it's a danger we face if, if we want to follow Jesus and talk about Jesus and never say something that somebody finds offensive or confrontational. I mean, through Scripture, we're going to see this again and again. Peter describes Jesus himself as a rock of offense. And Paul's already said in this letter that the word of the cross is folly to people who are perishing. There's a, a, a sports writer who I've, I've read and listened to for a while. His name is Jonathan uh, Charks. And he writes for a website and is a part of a a news team for a website called The Ringer. And uh, Jonathan, great NBA writer, um, and when he was in his mid-20s, about 25, 26 years old, Jonathan became a Christian after college, didn't grow up around faith at all, and God just captured him, revealed truth. He became a Christian. And about a year ago, in April of 2021, he was sick, didn't know what was going on, and, uh, and found out that he had terminal cancer, a very, very rare cancer, about one in 25 million people get. And the, about the time he found out, he had um, a one-year-old boy. And as a sports writer who is well-known, who works at this very secular company that writes about sports and culture, he wrote this article April of this year around April this year, and the article is, is amazing. I, I really encourage you to read it. It's, it's called, Does My Son Know You? And it's about him processing his, his coming death and him holding up the treasure that is church and gospel community. And the, the title of the article, Does My Son Know You?, is actually taken from something he says, which is, hey, the first thing I'm going to ask the men in my church, in my small group, when they get to heaven, is my two-year-old son, who I'm leaving behind, do they know you? Are you going to come over and 
play baseball with him? Are you going to show up to their games? Are, are they going to, is he going to become sick of you? You're around so often. That's my expectation of you. It's a profound and powerful article. I shared it with some of the elders this week. And the reason I went back and read it is because Jonathan passed away last Sunday. And I was going back and I was listening to an interview he did on a podcast about that article. And, and the guy interviewing him, a guy named Colin Hansen, he asks, hey, just as you've written this and you've seen the response, because the response was, it was published on The Ringer, and The Ringer is not Christianity Today or the Gospel Coalition. It's like articles like this championing the gospel in small groups in church don't show up on The Ringer. Um, if you've ever read it, but a lot of people read it and a lot of people who don't follow Jesus read it and it it is still today making a big impact. And so he was getting interviewed about this article and essentially how the conversation wrapped up was the person interviewing asked, Hey, what, what is your hope for the church today in light of how you've seen people who aren't followers of Jesus respond to what you've written? And this is what Jonathan said. He said, hey, it's okay to be explicitly countercultural. Not countercultural in the sense that I'm not going to vote who, for who everybody else is voting for. That's not really countercultural. Countercultural is saying this way of life we've been given that our society has is broken and not working, and we're offering something else. We're not offering a watered-down version of what you already can get in the world. That's never going to work. That's pointless. No. I believe in these firm truths. I believe in these firm truths, and I've seen them change my life. And I'm, I'm going to live this life, not going to go with the, the current or go with the tide of culture. And I think in the church, it's so easy to get caught up in thinking, I want to be relevant to culture I want to be connected to culture. And then Jonathan says, I've lived in the culture and the culture stinks. He goes on to ask, what do we really believe? What is the the difference or what is different about the way I live compared to people who aren't in the church? If your life isn't different than your friends who aren't believers, what's the point? Where's the fruit? And in his final days, as he was processing his hopes for the church, Jonathan's message is an echo of Paul's message. Hey, you don't need to change the gospel to be relevant. The gospel is the one thing that's always relevant. Everything else eventually finds itself being irrelevant. But the gospel, you just have to proclaim it. And in its, in its offense, in its difference of the message of what culture is offering is the beauty and the wisdom of God. So in light of that, Paul brings us to the second thing he wants us to know. The wisdom and the work of the Holy Spirit. The wisdom and the work of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 3. Paul again says, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. 
Now, when Paul says that his speech wasn't plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of, of the spirit and in power, it's understandable to think, hey, that might mean that, like, of course, Paul's ministry was accompanied by just miracles and healing and signs and wonders, right? And like, hey, as a church, we're all for miracles and healings and signs and wonders. And, and Paul's ministry certainly was filled with all that. But what Paul is actually talking about here is, is greater than even that or even a bigger miracle, Paul is describing the reality that when he came to Corinth and started preaching simple, straightforward message of Jesus on the cross, that the miracle that happened, the greatest miracle of all, is that when the people of Corinth heard that message, the Spirit of God moved, not because of Paul was impressive and not because the way in which he was proclaiming that was impressive, but because the Holy Spirit has all power and actually is the only one that has the ability to make a dead heart come alive. And took Paul's simple offering of what he had to say in his weakness and, and the power of God was displayed and lives were saved for all eternity. They weren't compelled by Paul's brilliance or the power of his presence, but the very power of God is what saved lives. And I think if we stop for a minute, and if you're a Christian in this room and you think back on your testimony, you're probably not going to come to a place where you're like, oh, I really wish was impacted by the gospel because that person was so profound in answering every objection I could ever have in that moment. It was probably a friend over coffee or a Sunday school teacher or a family member just simply sharing. I remember I was 13 years old the day before I had my birthday and my father took me down to a promise keepers gathering in Irvine, Texas. And there was a man named Bill McCartney who was a football coach for the University of Colorado. And he just gave the, the simplest presentation of the gospel. And yet, like, it was like the heavens parted and I was punched in the heart. <laughs> and, the, and it wasn't anything that Coach McCartney said. I don't remember, frankly, anything that he said, but I remember the Spirit of God crying to my heart, this is true, and God loves you, and you are a sinner, and you need forgiveness but Jesus has died for you and that changes everything. Paul says this is the wisdom of God. Verse six, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Paul's saying, look, the, the religious authorities who were Jewish, the political authorities who were Roman who crucified Jesus, they had no idea. They thought they were following wisdom. They had no idea what they were doing. And if, apart from the Spirit of God, we were in the same boat as them. Paul, the church in Corinth, us, like we, we need the Spirit of God to help us know the wisdom of God. And Paul's saying, hey, this wisdom is, is not hidden from us, but it's hidden for us. Like a mother wraps the best present under a Christmas tree and is in excitement and joy waiting for her child to, to open it and know the, the beauty of that gift that God has hidden this. that no, You can't imagine, Paul is saying, he's quoting Isaiah, and, and it's like you can't imagine how good this gift is. 
And the Spirit of God reveals the beauty of this gift, and that gift is the wisdom of who Jesus is and what he's done. And that gift is evergreen. It never, it never expires. And there's a wisdom of this age that we think that we have, but it always seems to be expiring. It never lasts. I came across a random article in the last couple of weeks, and it was because somebody had found in an old box um, instructions that were sent home with a new mom in the mid-70s, and it was instructions on how to nurse her baby. And she brought the baby back from the hospital. And point number one on the instructions in like 1973 of how to nurse your baby was put down your cigarette. <laughs> right? Not put it out. Just put it down. And of course, we laugh at that. But that was direct, official direction from a hospital not long ago about caring for a child. And we look back and we're like, that's, that's foolish. It seemed wise at the time. Now it's foolish. But isn't that often how the world's wisdom works? It seems wise at the time and you get some distance and you're like, that, that wasn't wise at all. And Paul's saying, hey, the message of the gospel for all eternity is always wise never expires. Verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Paul says in in Romans chapter 8, verse 27, that God the Spirit searches the hearts of men. That the Spirit of God knows our own hearts more than we know our own hearts. And then here he's saying the Spirit searches the very depths of the wisdom of God. And so this is the beautiful message Paul's holding up. This is, hey, when we share the gospel in power, this is what only the Spirit can do. The Spirit knows the depths of the hearts of people. Knows the foolishness that we have that we hold on to that we think is wisdom, the the things that we chase after that we think are gonna give us life but are never actually gonna fulfill us, the the silly things that are supposed to be good gifts but we hold up as gods and we worship them as as if they're gonna actually fulfill the longings of our heart and save our soul. And he knows all the ways that we're broken and all the ways that we're sinful and all the ways that we're running from God. And it's like we, as the Spirit searches the depths of our hearts, it's like we are in this deserted island where there is no life. And yet he has searched the depths of the wisdom of God. And he knows the, the beauty of, of the, the, what God has foreordained before the foundations of the world that his son would come and live and die and rise so that we can have life. And the Spirit into knows that because he was intimately involved in that story. It's part of his plan. Read the Gospels. Read Luke. Read Acts. And you see the Spirit empowering the very plans of God. And yet there's this chasm between the wisdom of God and our wisdom. And Paul is saying, hey, there's, there's one way for that chasm to be filled, and it's God the Spirit. He's the one that can actually take us to the place where we know in the darkness of our hearts the light of the wisdom of God. And we can't do that on our own, and there's no order of human words that will unlock that darkness and bring in light, but the Spirit of God is the one who has the power to save and open our hearts to believe the beauty and the truth 
of who Jesus is and what he's done. And Jesus in John 14 says that. Hey, the helper is going to come and he's going to convict you of sin and righteousness. And there's so much I want to tell you now, Jesus says, but when the helper comes, he's going to lift me up and proclaim to you all the things that I've told you and reveal to you wisdom. So in light of this, like, where do, where do we go? What do we do? Just two, two simple charges I think we have this morning in light of Paul's text. And the first is this, that we would just be charged again as a church to share the simple and powerful gospel. That we wouldn't get nervous about not being eloquent enough or not, not being powerful enough in our presence or all the things that can make us nervous and just remember that, hey, it feels really good to know the Apostle Paul was scared and trembled in light of being called to share the gospel. I have a hard time imagining Paul, who's just like this mountain of of a hero of the faith in my mind, being like, hey, I was trembling in fear to share the gospel. I feel that way sometimes. And yet, in his obedience, Paul's saying, hey, just simply share the power of the gospel to to your children at night, to your coworkers over lunch, to your friends on the block. The hope that you have in you. And you're going to be a, a weak proclaimer of that. And it might sound foolish as you do, and you might be nervous of the ways that it can be offensive, but just simply share and And watch, because the second charge we have is to trust the Spirit to do what only He can do. That we can't save anyone. But each and every one of us can be used by God because He loves us. He invites us to be a part of of simply sharing who Jesus is and what He's done. And we can watch the Spirit do only what He can do, which is to make a dead heart come alive in faith. Let's stand and pray. For my brothers and sisters in the room, Heavenly Father, I I pray that even now, as as we pray, that you would bring people to mind, people that you love, people that you're pursuing, people that uh, you have placed in our lives and us in their lives, in love that, that we are called to serve and befriend and simply share the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done the Son of God who came and lived a perfect life, laid down that life on the cross to forgive our sins. That he's not just our Savior, he's our Lord. And that we find actual true life only in his kingdom. And for my friends here that are just exploring Christianity spirit, we pray that you would do only what you can do, which is not through my inadequate words or communication skills and not us trying to be relevant or cool or unoffensive, but you and your power would reveal to them the truth of the gospel and that God loves them, that Jesus died for them, rose for them, and that they were made to live in communion with Jesus for all eternity. May they receive the gift of faith. May they confess their sins and declare you Lord of their life.
Would you help them do that now? We pray, Jesus, all this in your name and God's people said. Amen.